Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come. Let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Today's text takes place on Monday, the day after Palm Sunday when Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and her colt and received adoration and praise for who he is, Hosanna to the son of David. People shouted, he went into the temple and cleaned house. They had set up merchandising right in the place where Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and observe worship of Almighty God. But there was no space for them. They had set up shop, selling livestock, changing money, being obstruction uh, to their purpose as a nation of God's people to be a light to the world. And the Lord made a whip, and it doesn't say he hit the people, but he got the livestock moving and turned the money changers' tables over, rebuked the people, said, you've made my house, which is to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. The prophecy says those very words, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations. So it was an impact upon that reality that the cleansing of the temple did. It made room for all the nations, made room for Gentiles. Jesus came to make room for Gentiles. Aren't you glad about it if you're a Gentile? He came to make room for us. Now here he is on the next day, goes back into the temple, and there are the leaders, the people who officiated at the temple. They're pretty upset at him, and they question him about his credentials. You know, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Let's see your papers. Who signed your documents? What plumbing are you bringing this water from, basically? And the Lord says, I'll answer you a question if you answer a question for me. By what authority do I do these things? I ask you, the baptism of John, where is it from? From heaven or from man? Well, this put them in a quandary, having agreed to answer his question. If they said from heaven, then they will be asked, challenged, why didn't you get baptized by John? Why didn't you become a follower of his teaching? But if we say from man, the people whose lives have been changed they'll be upset at us and our lives could be endangered or our credibility could be questioned. So they took the, the chicken way and said, we don't know. They pled the fifth. The Lord said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, if, they, if he was to tell them, they would arrest him for blasphemy, which was what they were out to do, and it would have ended his life sooner than he planned. It was just a few days before the cross and he had some things to do. He then tells them a parable of a man who had two sons. This man was a vineyard owner, and he went to the first son and said, son, go work in my vineyard, and he said, I, his son said, I'm not going to do it. But afterward, he regretted his response, 
and he recanted. He went and did the work. The landowner, the vineyard keeper, went to his second son and said, go work in my vineyard. And the second son very politely said, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. But he did not do it. And he asked the chief leaders who did the will of his father. And they said, well, the first. And then he applied the parable to them. He said, assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Woo, those fighting words. These guys had fought their whole life to keep themselves clean from corruption. Meanwhile, they had covered it up with religious activity. The Lord had exposed their corruption the day before. And from sexual sin, and here he is saying, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. He said, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. In other words, you guys don't want to say if John was a prophet sent from heaven or he was making this stuff up. But when you saw lives changed of wicked people, tax collectors and harlots, you would not humble yourself and give credibility to this man of God and allow his ministry to have a greater impact. You guys mouth obedience, but you're like the second son. That's what he was implying. He said, here another parable, and he tells them about a landowner who had planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. So this was a sharecropping situation, but rather than just owning land where the uh, sharecroppers had to come in and do all the hard work. He'd prepare the vineyard for them. He had no doubt planted the vines and put a hedge around it, fenced it in, dug a wine press where that they could process their produce, and built a tower that they could use for looking out for uh, thieves, looking out for enemies coming on down the road. Uh, under this tower could be a shade, so it could be a place where they could take a break. So this was a perfect setup for vine keepers to come and work. And of course, as he leased it to them, there was an agreement, a percentage. We don't know what the percentage would have been in that day. But they would pay him at harvest time for their use of his vineyard. He was the owner. They were the workers. Now, verse 34, when vintage time drew near, getting close to harvest time, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit, that they might get his percentage. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one of them up, killed another one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. So he sent even more, and they did likewise to them, beat them, killed them, and stoned them. Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So these guys were thieves. They were taking advantage of the kindness extended to them of the vine dresser, knowing one day it would be heir, his son would become an heir of it. Let's kill him. 
That way we can just keep this to ourselves. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, the Lord asked a question, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? And the chief leader said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's quoting from Psalm 118. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. He told these guys the history of their ministry, the story of their nation, that every powerful man of God sent to bring the nation to repentance, to give the Lord his due honor, to render to him the praise that is his, they would often be persecuted and resisted, even killed by the forefathers of these guys that are resisting Jesus. And there Jesus stands. He is the son of the landowner. They are the leasers. He is the owner. And they, in a few days, are going to have him killed. Their own words condemn them by giving the answer to the question. He will destroy those men miserably and lease out his vineyard to another. Now the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables. They perceived that he was speaking of them. But instead of repenting, falling on their knees and saying, Lord, forgive us, we see the error of our ways. We should have respected John the Baptist. We should respect you. No, they sought a way to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitudes because the multitudes took him to be a prophet. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would understand what you're saying here in such a way that we apply it to our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen. This last parable is a parallel with Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. They would make hedges out of those stones, so the stones would be out of the way from hindering the growth of their vines, but also they could be used to build a hedge, a wall and planted it with choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So you see the parallel. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So here's the difference between Isaiah 5 and this parable of Jesus. In the parable of Jesus, the landowner expects to receive payment a share of the produce. Here, the vineyard owner expects to receive good grapes, but it brings forth wild grapes, uncultivated grapes, Mustang grapes, grapes that, you know, aren't as good. 
And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and burn down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, that's the grapes he was looking for, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for So in the context of Jesus' parables, he's looking for righteousness and justice in the lives of Israel's spiritual leaders. And he's finding nothing but corruption and injustice. People needing help, and they're ignoring the opportunities to serve. And just a power play between Rome and what they wanted and the needs of the people and their own needs. And so the Lord did not find the grapes in them when he sent his son that he wanted to find. Now, God knows all things, but he he plays into the drama of mankind because we don't know all things. And so through the story of redemption comes the Redeemer only to be rejected and killed. But through his resurrection comes a glorious story of redemption. That is the gospel. Welcome to Parables, our journey through the parables of Jesus as related to us through Matthew's gospel. Today's parable is actually two parables. We'll call it Parables of the Vineyard Workers. The first parable was a vineyard owner's sons. One was rebellious and yet recanted, became obedient. One was very polite and yet disobeyed. Parents, I just want to say this just by way of warning We don't like for our children to have rude friends, right? But if your kids have friends that are super-duper polite, don't completely trust them because it can be a front. It can be a show of hypocrisy. Yes, Mr. Jones. Yes, Mrs. Jones. Oh, no, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. If they're so perfect, just, just be wise. Here in this application of this story were people, the chief leaders who put on the front of being religious and spiritual, but inside they had murder in their hearts, and it was all a cover-up. And yet those who were outwardly rebellious repented. They became the obedient ones through the ministry of John the Baptist. So today we're going to talk about the parables of the vineyard workers or the value of repentance and obedience. Now, I entitle it Repentance and Obedience because people often go through the motions of repenting, but if repenting doesn't lead to obedience, it's not repenting. Repenting means to change your mind in such a way that it changes your hand, to change your talk, but more than that, it changes our walk. So repent is to make an about face in England, the Queen's Soldiers marching around Buckingham Palace during those special ceremonies 
hear the word repent, and when they hear that, they turn and go the opposite way. It's an about face or repent. And so it's not just turning around, but it's turning and going the opposite direction. So it's valuable to repent and obey. And these spiritual leaders were not repenting, nor were they obeying. And here's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Son of Almighty God, confronting them for their wickedness, and they are refusing to accept him. So I've got several points here before we get into applying it to us personally. The leader's questions revealed their hearts. It says, when Jesus came into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. They interrupted him. So he's teaching, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Love those who hate you. Do good to those that despitefully use you. Pray for your enemies. Give and it shall be given. Don't judge lest you be judged, but don't cast your pearls before swine. And so they interrupt him, teaching probably along those lines, and said, hey, where's your credentials? By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? What does this reveal about their hearts? They don't like Jesus. They don't like what he had done the day before. He had upset their apple carts. They don't like him using their building to do his teaching and the sound of authority in his voice. They don't like it. They don't like the things they've heard about him healing people on the Sabbath day. Everybody knows that God just sits around on the Sabbath day and does nothing. That kind of thing. And so they want to only certify people that meet their approval. They only want ministry that flows through their plumbing to happen on the premises. And obviously, they've got to stand guard for false prophets, but here is Jesus. He's not a false prophet. He's a prophet after the order of Moses that is leading the people of Israel from the bondage of sin and fake religion and falsehoods into truth, life, and love, discipleship, following him as their new rabbi. And so their question shows that they're challenging his authority. Jesus' response exposes their unbelief and their fear. He said, I'll ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you about what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? They reason among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we will fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. So he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So their unbelief in John and their fear of the people was exposed by the Lord's response to their question. Next point. Jesus' first parable confronts words without works. One son says he will not obey, and yet he does obey. So he changed his words by his actions. The other son had the words, he had the talk, but he did not have the walk. Do you have the words? Do you say all the right things? 
But then comes Monday morning. Then somebody makes you mad. Or then you don't feel good. And somebody makes a mistake by waking up grouchy and not letting them sleep in. This parable applies to us. Words are important, but more important are works that reflect our words. Sometimes in worship we sing these great songs. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Oh, and it's a holy moment. It's precious. Tears are flowing. But come the next day, here comes proof in the pudding. Sometimes the proof is we haven't surrendered a thing. We've just sung a song. May the Lord God Almighty confront our words today that are not reflected in our works. The second parable tells their history and the future. God is the vineyard owner. They are the leases. They're given responsibility to minister to the spiritual nation of Israel. And God expects fruit from their ministry. And he will send servants or prophets to bring truth to them to help with the harvest and they reject them, they persecute them, they kill them. When John the Baptist was beheaded, did these guys speak up for him, speak up on his behalf? Nope, they didn't. Well, they didn't kill him. If you have a position of authority and you don't speak up to end something that would be dead wrong, then you are complicit. You are a party to the wrongdoing. And so these guys, if they knew about it, were a party to the martyrdom of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. So they had been living in this parable and acting it out themselves, walking in the footsteps of their forefathers. By warning them, Jesus calls them to brokenness. He said, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You guys are rejecting something that is going to be foundational. It's a chief cornerstone. And it was prophesied that you do this. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but who on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Much better to fall on the rock and be broken. Much better to kneel down in repentance and be humbled in the eyes of the people than to be humbled by Almighty God and ground to powder. Much better to be broken than to be powder. Being warned, these guys reject life's greatest offer. Our text today, the chapter ends with when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. He's hitting them between the eyes. But when they sought to lay hands on him, 
they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So there it is again, their fear of the people that kept them from saying John the Baptist wasn't a prophet from God. And here they fear the people because they want to arrest Jesus. And they do it a few days later in the dark of night with the kiss of Judas and the arrest at night where the multitudes couldn't prevent them. So after this warning of the chief priests and elders, we go on for the next two chapters, and the Lord gets into warning the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the chief priests and elders were people that related to the Roman government. The scribes and the Pharisees were people that wanted to be faithful to the Torah. They wanted to keep the Scriptures, but they had their traditions. The chief priests and elders had their power. They had their authority. But the Pharisees and elders and the scribes, they've got their tradition. And so the Lord gets into pronouncing judgment on them. In Matthew 23, 29, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Let me ask you, when John the Baptist was arrested, where were they? Were any of them appealing to Herod for his release? The Lord continues in verse 34 of Matthew 23, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Yeah, your forefathers did these things, but you guys are going to do it too in the future. You're going to come against the prophets that I send you, the wise men, the scribes, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the evangelists, and the teachers. You guys are going to persecute them from city to city, and that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. And that story is told in 2 Chronicles 24, verse 20 and 21. Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar with them in the blood of the prophets. So he's laying the sins of their forefathers on their shoulders, You guys are just like them. And sure enough, it's going to be proven. But when Christ is arrested and at trial and Pilate wants to set him free, these guys were part of the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and our children. Now that's some serious religious anger to want the guilt of your sins applied to your kids. They hated him. The Lord's not done warning them. By the end of chapter 23, he weeps over the city. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, You shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So let me ask you this question. 
Does this conclude the Jews and God? Does this conclude the chosen people who had a covenant with God through their forefather Abram? Does this shut it down because they have rejected his son? Now he's going to destroy them? Well, I, want to, I want you to keep in mind that he is not confronting them for their ethnicity. He's not confronting them for them being the descendants of Abraham. He's confronting them for their hard-hearted, self-righteous religion and their corruption that has crept into the temple worship. So he is denouncing Judaism at that time. He's denouncing corruption in their leaders. But he's saving sinners. Come unto me, all you that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Everything he said isn't done away with by these words. So the question, does this conclude the Jews and God? Does this end their redemptive history? In answer to that question, look at verse 39. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's coming a day when the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are going to look forward to the coming of the true Messiah, those that are religious now look forward to the coming of the Messiah, and they would say the true Messiah, but they're vulnerable to false messiahs. It's happened to them in the past. But the day is going to come when they are all going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So does this conclude the Jews and God? No. No, God's got his plan. You read their history throughout the Old Testament. He judges them and then restores them, judges them and then restores them. And while they had been under judgment in 70 A.D., the armies of Rome, God allowed it to happen, surrounded the city while they're holding a civil war within the city and destroys everything. But because Christ had forewarned his followers, they escaped. When they, be, when they saw the armies begin to surround the city, they got out of Dodge. And these were Jewish Christians. And so the early church began with Jews who by Acts chapter 10, began to reach out to Gentiles. And then beyond that, they're going to Jews and other nations, giving them a chance to find Yeshua as their Messiah, and then turning from them when they get rejected to the Gentiles. So as Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So the gospel isn't the gospel to non-Jewish people if it's not the gospel to Jewish people first. So does this parables and these woes pronounced by Jesus in the relationship they have with God? No. Read verse 39. You shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Read the book of Acts. You see him doing glorious things with his people. And read Romans 11. I would like to read to you from Romans 11 because this, this passage is often misunderstood. There is such a thing in Christendom that we have called replacement theology. They do not like that. They just want to say the church became the new Israel. We didn't replace the old Israel. But yet 
they just relate to the descendants of Abraham just like any other ethnicity. They need the gospel. Yes, they do. But read Romans 11, and you'll see that as Gentiles, we are blessed by them. In Romans 11, he begins with our question, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also, the Apostle Paul's writing this, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Verse 5, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. While many of Abraham's descendants had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, many had received him as that. They were those that are elected by grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. So as a nation, they did not receive the Lord Jesus as their Messiah, but a remnant of them did. And the rest were blinded, just as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 69, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Verse 11, we're in Romans 11, 11, 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall and stay down? Certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God still loves the descendants of Abram, and he's redeeming the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy that they would repent and turn back to him as a nation. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So if in their rejection of the gospel has brought blessing to the Gentiles, we see this in action in Acts, Paul would take the gospel to Jews first, go to the synagogue first on the Sabbath day, reason with them from the scriptures, and those that accepted the gospel, got kicked out with Paul, and they with Paul would go and reach out to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles in those communities were blessed to find the Savior. If this was blessing to the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So as God restores the children of Israel to full redemption through Jesus as their Messiah, it's going to be even better if their rejection of the Messiah has blessed us, what will their acceptance be of the Messiah? Even greater blessing. Verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So if the nation, I'm speaking of them as a nation, not of the remnant of them that became believers, but if as a nation they rejected God's, offer of redemption to them, fulfillment of their own prophecies. If that has blessed us, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. So if it's been great now, it's going to be even better. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, speaking to us as Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. So because as Gentiles, we've been grafted in to the nation of Israel. We're children of Abraham by faith. We've been grafted in. But if we boast against the nation of Israel, 
I'm not just speaking about real estate over in the Middle East, but the people who are the descendants of Abraham, if we become prideful because we're now redeemed, do not boast against the branches. Do not boast against the tree in which you've been grafted in. Mercy's been extended to us. So this is a humbling thing. But you, if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You'll say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Now here comes the application. What does this have to do with me? Do not be haughty, but fear. Don't be prideful, but be highly respectful. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. If he was willing to be rejected and is so doing to bring judgment on those people, and we are blessed because of that, be very aware that God doesn't have to give you a dime. It's his mercy. And if he didn't spare them because of their rebellion, he may not spare us either. Therefore, verse 22, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness. So be aware of God's severity and his goodness. We observe these people experience the severity of God, but we've experienced the goodness. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. If we don't continue in God's goodness, we too could fall prey to God's severity. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For I do not desire, verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. But blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We are living in a glorious day where Almighty God, bringing into a redemptive relationship with himself thousands of Jews, thousands of descendants of Abraham are coming to Christ, believing in him as the Messiah. More Jews believe in Christ as their Messiah than have believed in the prior history of the world. It's awesome. I understand there's a couple hundred congregations in the geographical land of Israel today that see Yeshua as their Messiah. Just a few years ago, 10,000 Limba people who are the descendants of Abraham who had been exiled from the land of Israel when Nehemiah ran off the men who were unwilling to give up their Gentile wives. They wound up in Zimbabwe over the centuries. 10,000 in like one day became believers. This is a glorious thing. So awesome things are happening in our day. But beware, just as God is able to restore the children of Abraham to himself, after having severed the relationship, not permanently, of course, he's able to judge us, and judgment comes upon the house of God. 
So in light of these parables, and while we live under Jesus' authority, and remember Romans 11, how is my, and I'm going to ask you eight important questions. How is my thinking? Am I wise in my own eyes? These guys were wise in their own eyes, and they were unable to learn some awesome things from the Scripture, unable to see the fulfillment of prophecy. How could they be so blind? It can happen to us too, my Gentile brothers and sisters. How is my believing? Am I overcome with doubts, or am I believing in hope that the Lord is able to carry us in this season? How is my fearing? Am I fearing people? Am I fearing the government? Am I fearing disease? That doesn't mean we're not to walk in wisdom, but am I allowing the dilemmas of the day to crowd out my obedience? How is my speaking? Am I saying the right things? What we say is important, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But speaking should lead to walking. Talking should lead to walking. How is my obeying? How is my resisting? Am I saying no to God? Am I saying talk to the hand when he prompts me to reach out and to show love to others? Am I prejudiced towards people of another ethnicity? Or am I accepting and realizing that I too needed mercy at one time in my life? Or am I living in fear and darkness? Am I yielding? Does the Lord have to yell at me to get my attention? Or am I daily saying, Lord, I want to give you my life. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I want to do your will. Am I focusing? Am I focusing my attention on things above rather than things beneath? Am I focusing on ways to preserve my security and my dreams, and my desires, and my hopes, and my family, and us four, and no more. These people had the Redeemer in their midst, and they were unwilling to alter their thinking. They were unwilling to venture out into believing something they had even preached against. They were unwilling to ignore the fear of the people. They were unwilling to obey. They we're unwilling to deal with their resistance and their, their failure to yield to God, and focusing on redemptive history. These guys could have been absolute heroes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these parables and for the lessons they teach us. Almighty God, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts in such a way that we would see where we have erred that we would see, Lord, where we need to change our thinking. Our speaking, our walking and our talking, our focusing. Lord, lead us to repentance in Jesus' name. Lord, we're living in fearsome times, Lord. We're being taunted, tempted to be rebellious, tempted to become survivalists when, Lord, you've called us to be the light on the hill that cannot be hidden. Give us wisdom, Lord, in Jesus' name. As Pastor Shake comes again to lead us in the song, Come to the Altar, I encourage you just to
find a place to kneel right now, right there in your home. If you're driving, obviously don't do it, but find a place today and spend some time with the Lord and dig deep. Search your heart. Where are your words? Where are your thoughts? Where are your actions? And is your position one of humility and appreciation for the mercy extended to you? If we realize the incredible judgment power that God has for people that will not obey him, Lord, may we recognize the mercy you've given us is not to be taken for granted, but to live in light of that. Lord, we recognize that judgment begins at your house. So Lord, judge us today. Show us, Lord, where we are in light of these parables. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for worshiping with us today. I pray the Lord encourages you in every area of your life. I want to encourage you to pray for your brothers and sisters. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters, especially in California. Some communities there have just become so uh, legalistic in resisting religious freedom that there's threats of turning off electricity and water to churches that want to meet. I pray for wisdom for spiritual leaders that If they go through persecution, it's not because of the lack of wisdom or not because of self-inflicted wounds, but because of courage and humility doing the will of God. I encourage you to walk in wisdom, stay healthy, and be wise, and be encouraged. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. God bless you. Go get him, tigers. I have Thank you.